we created a timeline for this report and it documents 42 major attacks on science in this last six months. Um, and that averages out to an attack once every four days. Already we're seeing all out assault on science. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're taking a close look at science, or the lack thereof, in the Trump administration. Our guest is Dr. Gretchen Goldman, scientist and research director at the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Six months into the Trump administration has been long enough for the staff at the Union of Concerned Scientists to start seeing disturbing patterns emerge around abuses of science. And like good scientists, our staff is recording these observations. Our hypothesis? Scientists and scientific integrity are under attack. Our evidence? It's compiled in a new UCS report called Sidelining Science Since Day One. Our conclusion? We need to keep fighting back. Report co-author Gretchen Goldman took a few minutes off from monitoring the latest attacks on science to chat with our correspondent Seth Michaels about why federal science is so important and how we can all stand up for science. And I'm going to tell you about a new UCS initiative designed to help protect federal scientists. Over to you, Seth. Thanks, Colleen. This is Seth Michaels. I'm here with Gretchen Goldman. So, Gretchen, six months in, what's the state of science in the Trump administration? What patterns are emerging? We're only six months in, and already we're seeing a pattern of attacks happen like we've never seen before. We're seeing across issue areas and across federal agencies, science is under attack or being sidelined or being compromised in other ways, and it's happening across the government. So when it's working right, What role do scientists have in policy? What role should they have in the policy process? Science is a crucial input into decision-making in our government. Every time we eat food that is safe from contaminants and every time we use consumer products that are safe from other harms they might cause accidentally, this is because science went into that process. And scientists, experts both within the government and outside of it, weigh into those policy decisions to ensure that we all are safer and healthier and our environment is clean What are the pieces of that process? You have a bill like the Clean Air Act that says that the EPA needs to use science to inform decisions about pollutants. How do you get from there to a rule specifying ozone emissions? Yeah, the Clean Air Act is actually a really great example of a law that requires the use of science in decision making. So the Clean Air Act uh, dictates in it that we need to set standards for air pollution that are protective of public health. And so that means that for pollutants that we know to cause harm, like ozone, we need to make sure we know what the science is. What exactly is ozone's effect on our health? What level is safe for people to breathe? And so what we do 
is we have committees comprised of scientific experts that make recommendations to the federal government for what level ozone pollution standards should be set at. Uh, so this process, by and large, works very well, even in the face of inappropriate interference or in the face of lots of pressure from various actors to set the standard a certain way. By and large, the EPA has been able to set standards that are protective of public health. But what we're seeing under this administration is that scientific process, like in setting ozone standards, has been tampered with, has been compromised. On ozone in particular, Administrator Pruitt at the EPA issued a stay on it. He tried to delay the ozone standard by one year. Uh, but actually, some good news is we just learned this week that was actually reversed. And so now implementation of the new standard will go into effect this year as the law had required. So how is the Trump administration getting it wrong? What are the pieces of the puzzle there that are under threat? Uh, actually, it's most of them, Seth, unfortunately. <laughs> a lot of the efforts that we've seen have taken place at all the various ways that science informs decisions across the government. So one of the more prominent ones that we've seen this administration really tackle is uh, taking away science advice. So scientific advisory committees are under attack under this administration. We've seen them uh, disband a forensic science panel that was supposed to be getting more science into the way that we use forensic evidence in court cases. And there was a board of scientific counselors, which is a committee that informs EPA's research. And they've been eviscerated in terms of the members on that committee. Uh, and we've seen the administrator of the EPA look to do the same for the other scientific advisory committees that inform the EPA. Uh, and so this seems to be a place that the administration is really focusing on in terms of their attacks on science is really taking away that external science advice that is so valuable valuable to policy decisions. How is the Trump administration so far different from the ways that either the Bush administration or the Obama administration has misused science? What do you see as new in the Trump era? You know, Seth, scientific integrity issues have been happening in the government for many years. I've looked at these and, and studied them for a long time, and, and we've seen the politicization of science happen on a variety of issues uh, in the Obama administration, in the Bush administration, and prior. Uh, the thing that's different to me now is that a lot of the issues that we're seeing under the Trump administration are new kinds of attacks and that there's a lot more attacks on the process. Uh, not just tampering with evidence or changing science, which is a lot of the kind of thing we saw under the Bush administration, for example. But under the Trump administration, we're seeing them really try to dismantle the very process by which we can use science to inform decisions. So we talked about the taking away of science advice, and we're also seeing them chip away at the levers and, and checks and balances that allow us to make sure that science informs how we make decisions. And we're seeing them try to take science out of the equation in several ways. Uh, one example of that was uh, the EPA administrator's decision recently not to ban the pesticide chlorpyrifos for several uses. This was a pesticide that the EPA's own scientists, as well as the broader scientific community, told the administrator of the dangers of it and, that, and recommended that it be banned in certain contexts, and uh, yet the administration failed to do so. You mentioned the concept of scientific integrity, and that's something that we work on a lot at the Union of Concerned Scientists. What does scientific integrity mean, and why is it important? 
To me, scientific integrity is all about the process. It's making sure that the process we use to use science to inform policy stays free of inappropriate interference, that science is allowed to inform it appropriately, uh, that conflicts are disclosed, and that decisions are made based on that evidence, especially if that decision is required to be based on science. So there's many mm-hmm. laws, like we discussed the Clean Air Act, uh, that have provisions that mean we have to make decisions based on science. And to be clear, there's of course many reasons that decision makers will make decisions that have nothing to do with science. There's lots of inputs into decision making and science is only one of them, but the science that informs decisions should be independent. And when that decision is required to be based on science, that's what should happen. And so those are the kinds of things that we're looking for in the Trump administration, whether or not they are making science-based decisions when they're supposed to, are there avenues for independent science to be informing uh, decisions? And so far, uh, the record doesn't look good. If you don't have science informing these decisions, then they become entirely political. They become entirely about who has the most sway with this administration. And, uh, you know, in this case, as, as we've seen from a number of news stories, who has the most sway with this administration is industry lobbyists and you know think tanks and front groups that represent the industries that are trying to remove rules. It's true. I, mean, I think we can think of it as if science isn't there, what is? It's mm-hmm. leaving a void that's going to be filled by special interests. And these are decisions that should be in the public interest. In right. fact, that's legally required in most cases. But if we don't have the infrastructure in place to ensure that that happens, uh, we're really in a dangerous place. And so you've mentioned EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt a couple of times. Who are the worst offenders here? Who are the appointees who particularly stand out? Administrator Pruitt is very much someone who doesn't appear to respect the science, and we've seen this on multiple decisions of his so far, but he's certainly not the only actor in this space. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently appointed a non-scientist to be their chief scientist, so that's another one that we're watching, and I think there's several in the White House that we're concerned with. The lack of experts at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy was disappointing to see the lack of a science advisor. Uh, We still see some agency heads that haven't been filled yet. The um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, for example, doesn't yet have a head. Uh, We're seeing really a lack of scientific expertise in this administration, and I'm really worried about what impacts that will have on the ability of these agencies to carry out their science-based missions. So the Trump administration's allies in Congress are also contributing to this effort to remove science from the policy process. Can you talk about some of the the bills that we've seen moving in Congress and what they would do to science? Yeah, the attacks so far haven't only been coming from administration officials. Congress has also been very much involved in a lot of the attacks on science. In addition to the Congressional Review Act, which they've used to revoke 14 rules from the Obama administration, we've also seen them introduce new bills that would undermine the science policy process. Uh, So one example is the Regulatory Accountability Act, but it should be called the Regulatory Impossibility Act. This would 
actually create a tremendous number of new hoops for agencies to jump through, additional red tape and process and ways for people, industry lobbyists, for example, to challenge science-based rules. And in practice, it would make it impossible for agencies to issue new science-based rules because of this added burden. Uh, And there's several similar proposals to that. One is called the RAINS Act, the Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny Act, or RAINS Act. They all have these cutesy names that make them seem like they're these very, like, transparency-focused reforms, but actually what they do is remove accountability from (laughs) polluters. Right, yeah. And I think they almost try to bury you in process. It seems innocuous in that it Mm -hmm. seems like a process uh, issue. But in reality, it is uh, very damaging to the way that we make science-based rules in this country on everything from air quality to food safety to consumer product safety and uh, worker protections. And so um, this Congress has certainly been complicit in the attacks on science. Mm -hmm. What's been surprising to me is how quickly this has all happened. That's right. It's been happening at an incredible pace. Uh, It's kept me and my team uh, extraordinarily busy in the last six months because uh, the attacks have really been coming. In fact, we created a timeline for this report, and it documents 42 major attacks on science that happened in this last six months, um, and that averages out to an attack once every four days. Uh, And so that's an incredible number if you think about how much goes into policy decisions decisions, uh, and we're already we're seeing all-out assault on science. And I think one of the important things to note here is that these attacks, when they're reported on in the news, have often emerged as isolated incidents. One appointee at one agency made a decision, or one incident happened that got some, some outrage, a bubbling up of outrage. But what's really important is not all of these individual pieces, but the pattern that they represent. Yeah, that's right. Individually, none of these seem as egregious, but if we look at them all together, we really see this pattern emerge, um, and we see that there's this erosion of the use of science in decision-making. And so we have continued to try to look at all of those in that context. Uh, We actually compiled them on a website at ucsusa.org slash attacks on science. And that goes through all of the attacks that we've documented and puts them in context and looks at their impacts. uh, Because I think it is important that we look at these in terms of their collective impact and and what the patterns are. Many of these incidences are along the few trends that we've identified of sidelining science advice, uh, reducing access to science and scientists, uh, removing climate change from the picture uh, in terms of research. And uh, so these are all areas that we've seen continuous and steady attacks that are happening through multiple mechanisms. And so uh, mm-hmm. they aren't individual. We're actually seeing a broader pattern. We'll be back with the second half of our interview in a moment. You can find the report Sidelining Science at ucsusa.org slash sidelininescience. I want to tell you about an important resource for federal scientists. UCS has recently launched the Science Protection Project, a hotline for federal scientists and other employees who witness violations of the role of evidence-based science in policymaking. Scientists who call will receive legal advice and be protected under attorney-client privilege. We hope this project will help protect the confidentiality of those who report violations of scientific integrity. 
More at ucsusa.org slash science protection. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. More at ucsusa.org slash podcast. Oh, and stick around after the interview for our Sidelining Science segment with Shreya Durvasula. And now, let's get back to our interview with Dr. Gretchen Goldman. You've mentioned a few different areas, um, food safety, air pollution, public health, where it's not just about what science we're doing or what research we're doing or how that research is available, but actually how we can use that research. So what are the effects that undermining science can have on people out in the real world? That's a good question, Seth, because a lot of times the conversation is so much in D.C. and we're thinking a lot at the federal policy level. But the reality is that these impacts will have huge repercussions for the nation and people across the country are going to be affected if we can't use science to inform decisions, if we aren't collecting scientific information, if we don't have experts weighing in on processes, and if we don't have leaders of agencies that are committed to carrying out the science-based missions of their agencies. We haven't seen too much play out yet, but I think the chlorpyrifos decision not to ban the pesticide will have big impacts on people. It's a pesticide that's known to cause neurological damage to children's brains. And then we also saw this administration roll back some worker safety protections on silica and beryllium, two chemicals that are known to cause harm. Those rules have been delayed. Uh, So now we know that workers are going to be needlessly exposed to these harmful chemicals. As a scientist yourself, uh, you're, you're married to a scientist as well, what are you hearing from, uh, from the scientific community and particularly from scientists who work with or collaborate with the federal government? The scientific community is mobilized like never before. Many in the scientific community are more engaged and following these issues than I've ever seen. It's really been incredible to see that. But I think many of them are unsure and and anxious about the situation. It's unclear in a lot of ways how the government will support them or not in scientific endeavors. The scientific community depends on some continuation of the government's presence. We talked about uh, the role of government data being important to scientific work. There's also many grants that the scientific community receives from the government. Uh, And so the scientific community is really concerned about the future of of their work and, uh, and I think of the role that their work can play in policy decisions. Um, Most scientists want to see their work used and incorporated into uh, decisions. And so if we're not seeing that happen, I think the scientific community will be disheartened about the role that they can play in improving Mm -hmm. the world. Right. And for scientists who are making the choice about what field study, whether or not to pursue public service, is a deterrent if they feel like they can't actually have an impact, if they're either not going to get listened to or if they're going to become a political target. Yeah, that's right. I do worry a lot about the future of science and where people decide to choose to study. And I think, uh, you know, we might see scientists start to choose away from politically controversial topics, which, of course, are likely the topics where we most need scientific expertise to inform them. But if scientists and especially early career scientists and students are seeing that they're 
science is being politicized, it might encourage them to take a different route, either away from public service or away from that subject area. Right. And that's not just a problem for those scientists themselves and their careers, but it's also a problem for people who would benefit from better information. So the Center for Science and Democracy did a project in Houston where we worked with a community group to analyze exposure to pollutants from chemical facilities. And that, of course, relied in part on federal data. Yeah, it did. It relied exclusively on federal data, I believe, actually, um, because that's our source of information on a lot of risks that we face in in this country. And and particularly in the Houston case, as you mentioned, we see a lot of disproportionate impacts of pollution on particular communities. Uh, And so that's who might be more hurt by a lot of these policies. And I'm really worried about impacts on low-income communities and communities of color for some of these policies not using science under this administration, um, because in some cases that's who will be hurt the most. So they don't have access to that kind of data in the Houston case, they won't know what kind of risks exist in their neighborhood. Is a chemical facility next to their house? Is it storing dangerous levels of contaminants? Are there regular emissions being spewed out of a smokestack next to their house that could be harming them? They won't have any of this information if we don't have a steady stream of, of government data to rely on that's publicly available and accessible. Right. And and the the researchers who work for or with the federal government, they're not just in a building in D.C. There's weather monitoring, water quality testing, food safety inspection, like you mentioned. These are all things happening across the country that our businesses rely on, schools and first responders and communities rely on. Yeah, and and one good example of that might not immediately come to mind for you, but it it does for me as a mom of a young child is the role of something like the Consumer Product Safety Commission. The CPSC looks at products and their safety and it issues recalls and it looks for any sort of harm or threat being caused by a product. And this often applies to baby products like cribs and bottles and things that I'm thinking about a lot. And so I really value the role of that agency in being able to protect my child from those potential harms. And so I'm really worried in in this administration if we start to uh, take away the effectiveness of agencies like the CPSC, are they going to be able to do that? Am I going to be confident that my baby's crib is safe and uh, the stroller is safe and and their food is safe? Uh, These are questions that are going to have real impacts on people. And uh, I'm really worried about my own family and how that would play out. So what should we do to respond to this challenge? What's the role for scientists and the role for the public? Scientists can play a big role here, as can the public. We need everyone for this effort. I've been amazed to see what kind of interest there's been so far from the scientific community and from the activist community to really push back and hold this administration accountable in various ways. So we've seen some good little victories so far, and I think we can continue to push them as we have a steady drumbeat of trying to uh, deal with a lot of these challenges. Um, And so scientists, if they aren't already there, should join our science network, which uh, is some 20,000 scientists that are willing to lend their expertise to policy decisions and help us push back on uh, any current 
proposals now that that don't use science. Uh, And so we've been mobilizing a group of those scientists to help us with this administration and and trying to push back and make the case for why science is important and and why it needs to be involved in policy decisions. And likewise, non-scientists are equally important. Collectively, we need to all be articulating the value of science in our lives. As we've been discussing, uh, science is crucial to all of the public health and safety protections that we enjoy in Mm -hmm. this country, and we need to make sure that that role can continue. And for people who actually work within the federal government, we have a new science protection project where we're going to be able to give legal assistance to people who come to us anonymously and want to report abuses of the federal science process. So I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle as well. Yeah, I'm really excited about the Science Protection Fund. I think that should really help scientists who want to talk to us in confidence, uh, either just to get advice or talk through something confidentially, or to raise the issue publicly and get it out there a little more so we can do a range of of things depending on what the situation is. And I, I think that should be a great resource. Uh, And we also, on the activist side of our uh, science supporters, we also have a new Science Champions initiative that allows non-scientists to join us in this fight, too, and and go the extra mile and think about ways that we can push back. And uh, these are really exciting efforts that are happening across the country. And I've been amazed so far to see how much we've been able to accomplish in just a few months. Uh, We've already, across the country, seen our scientists and activists hold meetings where they're members of Congress, uh, their staff and district offices. We've been writing op-eds and holding events across the country. And it's really an impressive movement. And I've been very excited to see it. You know, this is a really rich subject and we could go on all day. But thank you very much, Gretchen, for joining me today and for all of your hard work pulling this all together so that you can see the scale of it. I think it's a really important report. We've already seen it get a lot of attention. And as this administration continues, I I think we're going to be seeing more of this. Thank you, Seth. It was great chatting. Thank you, Gretchen. And back to you, Colleen. Thanks, Seth. It's time now for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest weird news from an administration that retaliates against public servants telling the truth about climate change. Ashreya Dervasala has the story. Let's start in Alaska where rising seas, melting ice, and thawing ground will leave hundreds of Native Americans across several coastal villages without homes, in some cases within the decade. The people who live in these villages know what they need to thrive, funding for relocation, flooding mitigation measures, and for someone in the U.S. government to care about their situation. Thousands of miles away in Washington, D.C., Joel Clemens' job was to care, He studied sea level rise and its consequences for Native American tribes in Alaska and helped them find ways to prepare and adapt. As director of the Office of Policy Analysis for the Department of Interior, Dr. Clement spoke up about people's needs and how climate change was affecting their lives. Until he received a letter from Secretary Ryan Zinke. Clement and about 50 other high-ranking officials within the department were to be reassigned in many cases to jobs they have no qualifications for. Clement's role switched to an advisor position at the department's Office of Natural Resources Revenue. He describes it as an accounting job, keeping track of payments received from fossil fuel interests for drilling on federal land. Dr. Clement is not an accountant. A reshuffling this large is unusual to say the least. 
In an op-ed in the Washington Post last month, Clement wrote, I believe I was retaliated against for speaking out publicly about the dangers that climate change poses to Alaska Native communities. It is clear to me that the administration was so uncomfortable with this work and my disclosures that I was reassigned with the intent to coerce me into leaving the federal government. He continued, Let's be honest. The Trump administration didn't think my years of science and policy experience were better suited to accounts receivable. It sidelined me in the hope that I would be quiet or quit. So far, Clement has done neither. But he has filed a complaint with the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, and eight senators wrote a letter urging the department to investigate the reassignments. Back in Alaska, the Native Americans whose land is being swallowed by the sea do not have the luxury of playing partisan politics. They've lost an important advocate in the Department of the Interior. Real human lives and livelihoods are at stake. Secretary Zinke may claim he's reorganizing for efficiency's sake, but we know he's sidelining science. That's it for this episode of Got Science. If you'd like to dig into the report, go to ucsusa.org slash sidelininscience. And if you're a federal scientist and you've witnessed interference with science and you'd like to get some confidential advice, please contact our hotline. More info at ucsusa.org slash scienceprotection. Special thanks to scientist Gretchen Goldman and our correspondent Seth Michaels. Sidelining Science is brought to you by Shreya Dervasula. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Got Science, go to ucsusa.org podcast. Or even easier, you can pick us up on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please, share us far and wide. Thanks, and see you next time.